I am pleased to introduce tonight's speaker, Greg Easterbrook. Greg Easterbrook is author of six books, including Sonic Boom and the best-selling The Progress Paradox. He is a contributing editor to the Atlantic Monthly. He is also a contributor to the New Republic and a former fellow in government studies and in economics at the Brookings Institution. His articles also appear in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Time, and Slate. You may also know him for his weekly column in ESPN.com entitled Tuesday Morning Quarterback. Mr. Easterbrook lives near Washington, D.C. with his wife and three children. Please welcome Greg Easterbrook. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Let me start with a joke that I think is pertinent to our times. A seeker of wisdom decides to climb a remote mountain in order to talk to a famous guru who lives in total solitude. So he laboriously climbs the mountain. He reaches the cabin where the guru lives. And he enters and says, great guru, will you tell me please, what is necessary for humanity to live in peace and justice? So the guru sits in total silence, doesn't speak for hours. The man sits cowering in front of him, afraid to even cough or or shift his weight. And finally, the guru looks up and says, as I see it, there are two possibilities. The practical possibility and the supernatural possibility. The practical possibility is that Jesus and the Buddha and all the great saints and philosophers of history reappear in the clouds and come down to save us. So the man says, okay, so then what's the supernatural possibility? And the guru says, oh, people start to cooperate. (laughs) So I I feel, especially living in Washington, D.C., as I do, I feel that way about the world on a pretty regular basis. Um, Let me tell you that flying here last night, I read a scary book on the plane. Many of you probably feel anxious about our future. So I read this really scary book. The author, and not mine, of course, uh, the author, because I'm an optimist, the author said that the United States has entered a cycle of irrevocable decline, The technology was taking over our lives, and that this couldn't be reversed, that some great disaster of destruction or war lay ahead, and that our educational system was unable to prepare people properly for the rapid pace of change that they would face. It was a pretty scary book, and the scary book was The Education of Henry Adams, written in 1907. Feelings of fear about the future of the United States are nothing new. In fact, you can trace them back practically to any point in our country's history. Equally important, feelings of fear about the future of mankind are integral to all of our past. You can go back any century or period that you want. This is a common fear. You read Plato's writing from 2,400 years ago, and Plato wrote that the world was sweetly ordered in his youth and was now rapidly going to hell in a handbasket, although he didn't actually use the Greek word for handbasket. That was the sentiment that he expressed. Um, I'm basically an optimist, although not a Pollyanna. Let me talk first about the things that I'm optimistic about. If we step back from our concerns of the moment, and of course the United States has many current problems, the larger arc of history is mainly positive, We think about recent decades. Lifespans have been increasing. Education levels have been increasing around the world, especially for girls and women, which is is essentially the developing world. A lot of the things that I'm optimistic about have more to do with the developing world than the United States and European Union. Freedom is spreading in most nations, obviously not all. Uh, It's a halting battle. But democracy is winning the struggle of ideas. And the more democracy spreads, the more the globe will become a happy and prosperous place. Communication is improving, becoming very cheap, very practical. 
the world is getting, parts of the world are getting to know other parts of the world. The more that we know each other, the less that we will fear each other. Information is becoming more readily available than it's ever been in the past. I actually think that Google is going, whatever you think of Google, I think they're going to succeed in their project of making all public information available to everyone at no cost. I think that's actually going to happen. And it's going to happen within our lifetimes, not, within, not over a course line of centuries. I think most trends are positive for most people, especially in the developing world, but for most people here in the United States also. Now, many people don't like the fact that globalized economics is the motive force for some, although of course not all of this, some of it would have happened regardless. But I think if you feel that way, you have to ask yourself the, compared to, the, the, the question compared to what? If we hadn't had liberal trade policies in the last 30 years, would we like the results any better than the situation we have now? Certainly we would have much higher impoverishment in the developing world if we hadn't had liberal trade policies. The, the United, and I'll give you United Nations statistics. 30 years ago, there were 2.5 billion people living at the level that the United Nations calls medium developed. That's roughly middle class. Today, there are 4.2 billion people at that level. Of the 2.2 billion people who have joined the human family in the last 30 years, and that's a, that's a number that makes your head spin. That's more than the total number of people who are alive in the year 1900. But of those people, 80, 85% have joined at the level of medium development or roughly middle class. It's a tremendous sociological achievement. Again, United Nations figure 30 years ago, there were, there were 1.3 billion people living in impoverishment defined as in today's dollars, a dollar per day or less. Now the figure's down to 500 million. Still a shocking figure. I mean, 500 million people living in that level of poverty, but it's less than half what it was 30 years ago during a period when the human population has exploded. So, lots of problems, yes, but will we like it any better if global international trade had not come along and caused the developing world, or at least been a big factor in the extremely rapid development of China and India? I don't think we would like it any better at all. I think we'd like it a lot worse. If we hadn't had global trade, we would also not have the superpower relationship that exists between the United States and China now. There has never been a superpower relationship that is not fundamentally based on military competition until the United States and China. Now, there are all kinds of problems with our relationship with China. Many of us think the Chinese government is creepy, and guess what, it is creepy. And there are all kinds of human rights problems in China. But for the world's two largest and most powerful nations not to be competing on military power, to be competing economically, is a new development. Is it, a, is it a permanent fix for the world's problems? I don't know. You certainly, if you read commentary written in the late 19th century, many people believe that e economic interconnectedness then would prevent future war and what happened in World War I. So it's no guarantee, but it's certainly a positive sign. Global arms, this is one of my favorite facts. In fact, in, if I had to pick a favorite fact in the world, this is my favorite fact. People don't know this. Global arms spending has been declining on a linear basis for 25 years. If you adjust to today's dollars, per capita the world spends 40% less on militarism than it did 25 years ago. Here's, here, and I'll give you all the, the, the supporting detail for this is, uh, of course, in Sonic Boom, which I have to hold up, now I've held it up. Um, combat has declined in the world on an almost linear basis for about 20 years. We see the spectacular exception of the terrible war in Iraq and, and the, the semi-war in Afghanistan and what's going on in Sudan. Obviously, there are places where, 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 where organized violence continues. But overall, 
the number of wars in the world, the intensity of wars in the world, and the casualties in wars in the world has declined, not every year, but almost every year for the last 25 years. Now, the main thing, of course, is the end of proxy wars caused by the Cold War. But I think economic interconnectedness is also helping. Nations increasingly are more concerned with market share than with, than, than with acquiring territory. And it's not a perfect solution to the world's problems, but it's so preferable to militarism, there's no, there's no comparison between the two. Ideas are becoming more important than physical resources. What would you, if, if you had a choice would you rather possess all the ideas at Google or all the bauxite in a mine? I think the answer to that is pretty obvious. And I like the fact that the world is moving in that direction, even though many problems are engaged at the same time. And the world's supply of ideas is skyrocketing. We tend to think that the natural order of the global economy is for the United States and maybe a few countries in Europe to generate all of the world's ideas and engineering solutions and so on, and then for the rest of the world to manufacture those things. Increasingly, the ideas that run the world are going to come from the developing world where the majority of the human family lives. And this will not only be good for the developing world, it's going to be good for us too. We will benefit. And especially the number of ideas will increase as women acquire their freedom across the world. In most of the world's countries, women have historically not only not had education, but have had very little way to express their ideas in business terms, to affect the economy, to work as engineers, work as scientists, and so on. Over the course of the next couple of generations, that will change, and not in every country, but in most countries, women will acquire both the education needed to do those things and the freedom to express themselves in economics, engineering, and so on. That's gonna double the world's supply of ideas. To me, this sounds like good news and a reason to be optimistic about the future of the global economy. Now, I said I wasn't a Pollyanna. Let me tell you what I worry about. I don't think any of these things are gonna make us any happier. I don't think our sense of well-being is going to rise. In fact, I think it's going to go in the other direction. I think the same forces that are going to make the world more prosperous and more free are going to make us more anxious and insecure at the same time. And there probably is no solution to that problem. Uh, I think globalization is just getting started. If globalization is driving you crazy, brace yourself because it's just getting started. We are in a very early phase of what's going to become an incredibly interconnected world interconnected in the physical sense, communication, in the economic sense, in the cultural sense. You may, you may or may not like this. People are going to dislike this on many levels, but countries are going to get more and more like each other with the passage of time. Most of them will get more and more like us. That means they're going to, get, they're going to have louder music and more traffic and more litigation and more superficiality, but they'll also have more freedom and more economic prosperity. Globalization's effects are just getting started. And this is true, the, the short-term reason that this is true is for technical reasons. Ele electronic technology is just starting to improve. That super advanced cell phone in your pocket is going to seem rudimentary to a teenager 20 years from now. But more, more important, the founding ideas of the Enlightenment, which have prospered really only in the United States and European Union for the last few centuries, are now spreading, not everywhere, but almost everywhere. China is the great test case of Enlightenment thinking because China is converting itself pretty much to Enlightenment ideas across the board. If the Enlightenment is fundamentally right, China will prosper and be free and we're all gonna be happy people. Now, if the Enlightenment is fundamentally wrong, we're gonna find out in a major way, but Enlightenment thinking is spreading across the world and mainly it's gonna be good. It's not gonna make us any happier. And this accelerating pace of, of Economic change we face is going to happen at the same time that the climate changes. 
Climate change, which would itself be a highly disruptive force, is going to happen at the same time that we have extensive economic change. And either one would make your head spin. They are both going to happen together. So I think we're going to have a continuing increase in our sense of anxiety, our sense of insecurity. I, I have coined a, a pop psychological term that I call collapse anxiety. I think we all at some level fear that, although the Western way of life is pretty good now and we wish that everybody could live it, that something, some imposed calamity, resource collapse, terrorism, something is going to cause our, our, our way of life to collapse. I don't think that's going to happen, but I admit it's a reasonable fear, and of course you can't prove that it won't happen. So I think collapse anxiety, which has been in our spirits long before the physical collapse of the World Trade Center has made it palpable, is only going to get worse and worse. The book is structured around examples of 11 locations in the world. And I start by talking this, about the city of Shenzhen, China. I'll, I'll just talk about that one briefly. Each, each is chosen to communicate a, a message about what I think is coming in the global economy, but I'll just talk about Shenzhen for the sake of brevity. Shenzhen is a spectacular vista to behold, and you are forgiven if you've never heard of it. It's a city in which nine million people live, the same as New York City. It has soaring skyscrapers, apartment blocks, all new, glistening, restaurants, hospitals, schools, as the world's fourth largest port. It, it, it takes your breath away to look at the place, and it did not exist 30 years ago. I mean, there was nothing where Shenzhen sits today. It is, it is the largest and most rapidly built major metropolis in human history. You think of the great cities of the Western world, Paris took centuries to reach its current status. New York City took at least a couple of centuries. Even here, Los Angeles, which was a relatively sleepy place, in the 1930s, took 70, 80 years to reach its current impressive status. Shenzhen, Shenzhen went from nothing to a bunch of rocks to one of the great cities of our earth in just 30 years. And it was built entirely without input from the United States or European Union. Chinese engineers, Chinese thinkers were behind every inch of the city. The city is not without its problems, including poverty and pollution. But it has risen basically before our eyes, or at least before the eyes of the Chinese, um, at a spectacular rate. And I think more places like that, for good or ill, are coming. One reason I'm optimistic about the near global future is that the whole world is finally tran transitioning from backward forms of agriculture to high yield agriculture, from moderately backward forms of production to highly efficient production, and, and I think eventually we will trans transition to efficient energy production, although we haven't gotten there yet, even in the United States. If you think two generations ago, much of the world did not use high yield agriculture. That condemned people to lives of subsistence, backbreaking labor on farms, and also made food supply a, a critical concern. Much of the world did not use highly efficient production techniques for manufacturing. And practically nobody outside the Western world used even reasonably decent energy production. Now we have most of the world using high yield agriculture, most of the world using highly productive manufacturing techniques, and much of the world transitioning to relatively clean forms of energy, and then eventually we'll go on to green energy. This is, this is causing a very rapid burst of productivity globally. It also means fewer manufacturing jobs. It's a big concern. The United States has lost six, six million manufacturing jobs in the last 30 years. China has lost 28 million manufacturing jobs in the last 30 years. And this is not because of international trade. This is because of rising productivity and improved technology. These job losses would have happened regardless of what any country's trade policies would be unless we had 
in some way banned and improved technology. And if we'd banned and improved technology, we would, you know, today I'll be driving finned Cadillacs with, with no seat belts that get 10 miles per gallon. It is, I have, your heart goes out to any factory worker who's lost a job in auto manufacturing or appliance manufacturing in the United States, but that transition was always inevitable. Uh, it does not mean that manufacturing is declining as a human activity. We make more steel domestically in the United States today than we made 30 years ago, but we make it with a workforce that's about 80% smaller. Uh, we, we also make it with fewer air emissions, less waste, etc. cetera. Uh, we haven't gone far enough on fewer air emissions and less waste, but the trend there is positive. But we do it with fewer people. At the manufacturing level, this was always inevitable. Boeing is a good example. 20 years ago, when they started building the 737, actually that was 30 years ago, uh, it took them 22 days to build one. Today they build one of those planes in 12 days with less than half as many people. Uh, the, the, the decline in manufacturing workforce is hardly unique to the United States. If you go to Stuttgart, which is the, the, Detroit, the Germany's equivalent of Detroit, Stuttgart's loss of manufacturing jobs is almost identical to Detroit's loss of manufacturing jobs. You look at percentages or, or jobs per car produced or whatever, whatever barometer you want to pick. And, and these are German, everybody thinks, well, German cars, they're so smart, they're so sharp, they've got all, they're so far ahead of us, blah, blah, blah. Their loss of manufacturing jobs has happened at the same rate that ours has because it's, it's driven by in, increased and improved technology. Uh, I think that will continue, in fact, accelerate. The kinds of factories we build today that are specialized for one particular product and generate enormous amounts of waste and only effectively use a small percentage of the energy going into them, et cetera, within, within no more than a couple of generations and maybe faster than that, those factories won't exist anymore. Factories of the future will be, fact, will be flexible production facilities that build very wide ranges of products with very low use of energy and low production of waste. It's going to mean fewer manufacturing jobs with each passing year. There isn't any way to change it unless you would like to, unless you, unless you think it would be possible to ban technological improvements. I'm not sure it would be, but unless you're willing to accept living with thin Cadillacs, there isn't any way to change it. But you think about the good side, the increased prosperity that high productivity generates in the developing world as well as here, and more importantly in the developing world, leads to more teachers, more people in healthcare, more coaches, more artists. There are some types of jobs where you cannot increase productivity. Teaching is probably the best example. Playing classical music is another great example. Classical music to rehearse for it and perform it is just as inefficient today as it was 300 years ago, and it's always going to be inefficient. So we, we, some of the things, some of the professions that are inefficient, we like teaching and, and healthcare and the healing arts are the, are the main ones. As factories and farms become more productive more resources are freed up for inefficient uses, like teaching. And I like that, but of course it's upsetting to you, but especially if, if you are the one whose profession is impacted. And I think more of that kind of anxiety and more of that sense of job security, job insecurity is coming. Uh, it's going to accelerate to the point where we pretty much want to scream. Uh, this is in part because the media is ever better at scaring us. Uh, and I think they'll get con considerably better in the future. One of the reasons that our politics seems so gridlocked, and I live in Washington, I don't have to tell you about political gridlock, obviously, you already know, is that the, the mechanisms of political gridlock are getting ever more efficient. Just as our factories constantly get efficient, more efficient than our farms do, our media get more efficient at scaring us, our politicians become more efficient at generating gridlock. I don't see any change to those trends either. I think that 
in the long term, nearly everything that frightens us will eventually be seen as good if you look back at changes in the past, cultural changes, things that people thought that we could, that, that, that would cause social disruption in the past. Once those changes are over, we're always happy about them. And the most obvious example is agriculture. You only need to think back 100 years in the United States to a point where 70% of Americans were involved in some aspect of the agricultural economy. And if you had told a rationalist 100 years ago that in the year 2010, 2% of Americans would be employed in some aspect of the agriculture economy, which is the current figure, our rationalist 100 years ago would have said, well, that's it. That's going to be the end of our society. There'll be no jobs. Everything will collapse. The world will be terrible. Well, you see what's happened since. We have the same feelings today about changes in the economy. And I think once those changes are over, we will look back on, on them and be glad that they occurred. I, I think there's, there's one area where, actually two, I'll give you two, two areas where we can help prepare ourselves against the pace of change in the future. And one is we have to have some decent kind of healthcare reform. I, I cannot think of any way that any enlightened president or any enlightened philosopher king could prevent the stress that's going to come in the future from economic change. I think it's just going to be, it's a part of the human condition that we must accept. But we can eliminate the stress that's caused by worry about health care. It's within our power to do that. If you look at polling data comparing the United States and the European Union countries, Economically, we're actually quite similar to Europe. Europe is buffeted by the same economic forces that buffet us here, yet well-being and satisfaction in life is higher in Europe than it is here in the United States. Well, maybe this is because we should spend more time hanging out in cafes, drinking wine. Maybe that's the, maybe that's the explanation, but I think the explanation is that there's more satisfaction with life in Europe because Europeans don't worry about their health care. We have to have the same reality here in the United States. It is the one major source of stress that is within our power to eliminate. And, and a big reform that I encourage has to do with education. California is, I just, I can't believe that California is cutting the spending for the greatest public education system in the world while, while subsidies for all kinds of interest groups go up at the same time. If you had to name, well, I, I say in Sonic Boom, then if you had to na name one thing that's really great about the United States, it's not our military, it's not our technology, it's not our science, it's certainly not our popular music. It's our college system. Our college system is the envy of the world. We've got a 10 to 1 advantage over the rest of the world in high quality colleges. And it has a lot to do with our economic success. I think this is a thought that's completely missing from American politics right now. We think in American politics, college, whether private or public, is viewed as some sort of indulgence where people spend four years drinking beer and going to sports events, and then, then they go out into the real world. Our college system is the essence of our success in the world. And yet, not just here in California, but Texas and Florida, we're also cutting their public education systems. I think it should be the other way around. The comparison I draw is that you go back to the, the great progressive reform of the 19th century was universal public education to the age of 16. It was considered at the time, it was impossible, nobody could afford it, we could never build all the schools, there are all these reasons why it could never happen. And then once it was finally done, of course, we we're all very proud of it and it had a clear positive impact on our society. So adjust for life expectancy, late 19th century to today, and we should have universal public education to the age of 23. That's how the life expectancy calculation works. And I think that's what we need. We need a future where every single person attends college. It will, that, and, that, and that kind of spending will be an investment in the country, it will not be a subsidy. And, and I, wish, I, I wish this thought was present in our political system. It doesn't seem to be even in the California system. 
Let me close by reading to you briefly from the book, and then I'll be happy to take your questions. Even in a new economy where nothing is permanent, a few principles are certain. Education will matter more and more. There is no scenario in which education does not ascend in importance. Government will need to invest both in ever better public education through the high school years and in universal college education. Interpersonal skills, particularly the ability to get along with people who are not like you, will become highly prized in the future. Whether you're looking for a job with a big employer or going into business on your own, the ability to communicate with people who are different from you and cooperate in a constructive manner will become essential. And don't get set in your ways. Those who embrace change rather than fearing it will be the winners as the decks are endlessly reshuffled. Not far into the future, globalization will mean more to your daily life than it does now. International ease of trade and ease of communication, which seem advanced to us today, both are just getting started. Those seemingly super advanced devices in your home, your car, your office, soon every form of electronics you use will be seen as backward. The near future holds a greater pace of change than the pace that today makes you crazy because the sonic boom is just beginning. But no matter how crazy and chaotic events become, probably things will turn out fine. Probably with each passing year, the world will be on balance, a better place than at any point in the past. Whatever comes next, bear in mind that the high-tech economic model of a sonic boom world is a thousand times preferable to military conflict, isolationism, or authoritarianism. A chaotic, raucous, unpredictable, stress-inducing, free, prosperous, well-informed, and smart future is coming. Just remember to cover your ears. Thank you. Hi, um, I'm Veronica. My question is, actually I have two. One is the numbers about the military spending. You said it was decreasing per capita, but don't you think that may be misleading that if you look at the total expenditure, not per capita, it may be actually increasing? Yes, total expenditure military in the last 25 years is down about 10%. If you adjust for population growth, you would expect military expenditures to rise. Per capita is down about 40%. Uh, hi, I'm, I, uh, I read your Tuesday morning quarterback column. And um, my question is, uh, do you think Brett Favre is going to retire this year? <laughs> oh, my name is Morgan. Uh, yeah, you, um, would ha you would have to climb that mountain and ask that guru that question, I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, actually, a uh, real question. Okay. Um, five years from now, do you think um, my, I can count on the government sponsoring my health care, or um, do you think uh, the process is going to take longer? Yeah. The, the health care reform situation is such a total mess that makes you despondent about the condition of American politics. I don't know if anything's going to happen this year. Uh, and one of the things that I worry about is that last spring, there were a few pretty decent deals put on the table that I now wish that the, that the White House had taken. Last spring, so you probably missed this in your newspapers, but the, the big um, trade association that represents the health insurance industry said that I think the two, the, the two sort of problems, the, the, the problem number one in American healthcare right now is the pre-existing condition problem and the inability of people who don't work for big companies to afford their, to afford their insurance. So the, the Health Insurance Trade Association said to the White House, basically, look, if you'll put off healthcare reform, we'll do away with pre-existing condition clauses, we'll accept commutiny rating, which is the technical term for charging everybody the same, you know, we'll make, we'll make, we'll, we'll make uniform policies available to everybody at the same cost regardless of, of their pre-existing commissions. And, 
when I read that, I thought, just take that deal right now. Stop right now and take that deal. And now that deal's off the table because now the, now the healthcare reform situation's gotten so weak that the insurers are no longer offering that. So. Uh, my name's David. I have a question regarding total numbers. If, in fact, we have uh, more efficiency in agriculture, more efficiency in manufacturing, many, many more people, and the ratios of, uh, even if you increase teachers, doctors, and some other service industries, you're going to have a very large excess of population with nothing to do. And uh, what is going to become of these people? Why are they not going to be fomenting more wars because they haven't anything better to do? Well, this is, I mean, this is a 200-year-old concern about automation. And it hasn't come true yet. That's no guarantee that it won't come true at some point in the future. Until, you, this is hard to remember now, but in 2006, the United States had 4.5% unemployment. Until the financial meltdown began, there was no sign of that in our economy. There was no sign of that in the Scandinavian economies. They're probably the best indicator of how it is today because Scandinavian service sector is even larger than ours. Our service sector is now around 60%. Scandinavian countries are around 70 to 75% service sector economy without falling apart, without having runaway levels of unemployment, et cetera. Now, is that a guarantee that, that automation won't someday do us in and we won't eventually, years from now, say that the Luddites were correct? No, that could happen. I admit it could happen. Uh, hi, I'm Todd Kerner. Um, Fascinated by your story about, I believe it was Shenzhen, the mm -hmm. city in China. Yes. Could that kind of development have occurred as quickly as it did if China were not a totalitarian government? Well, in that case, that was the f one of the first places where economic liberalization began in the late 80s in China. So they loosened up, in, for, to build Shenzhen basically, they loosened rules that continued to apply to the rest of the country. China is a, is, is a weird mix of totalitarianism, Confucian traditionalism, high-tech, cell phone, Google, computer-driven modernism, and I don't know what to call it because it's never happened before in human history as the rest of China. Uh, it's a very complex society. Nobody's really in charge of it. I think one of the things that, that worries us about the, the when, you, when we look at a country, you say, well, well, who's really running this? Whose master plan is being followed here? And, and, and my thinking a lot about China, my, my ultimate conclusion is that nobody's running it. There is no master plan. And, and I think you can say the same thing largely about the global economy. We would all like to think, well, the president's in charge of the economy or, or the United Nations or the CEO of Walmart. Maybe he's the most important person running the economy. Nobody's in charge of the economy. And, and that's why it's such a source of anxiety because nobody knows what's going to happen next. And so, yes, dictatorship had something to do with the early planning of where that city is and what it was laid out to be. But since then, it's taken on a life of its own, and the Chinese authorities themselves have no ability to control what happens there. Hi, I'm Bob Stern. Thank you very much for a thoughtful talk. My wife and I just returned from Nepal, and I was reading the letters to the editor. From, from where, please? Nepal. Oh, Nepal, right. Okay. And we were reading letters to the editor, and you could have sworn they were the letters written by United States citizens, how we distrust our government, how the politicians are all corrupt. What can we do to increase confidence, not just in government, but all of our institutions, churches, unions, even businesses? Well, that's, I'm not sure what the answer to your, to your 
question is because confidence in all institutions is declining. It's one of the sources of anxiety that, that we all suffer from in one level or another. Just to say roughly for the sake of argument, a couple of generations ago, no matter what was going on in your own life, you could always say, well, I belong to this great institution, this government, this church, this military, and I'm taking, I, I'm a member of this great institution that's important in the world, and my service to this, whatever else goes on, my service to this great institution gives me some consolation in life. And today, I mean, what great institution would you point to that you're really proud of in American life? Uh, individually, there are many Americans doing great things, but is there a church that you're really happy with? Is you're really happy with the military? You're really happy with government? Uh, you can find lots of individuals within those institutions that are wonderful, wonderful people, but we don't have a great, real, a great sense of uh, any of them as institutions that believe in them themselves. I think it's good that that kind of skepticism is spreading to all other nations. The last time, I mean, it's been 20 years since I've been in Nepal, but the, the time that I was there most recently was about 20 years ago. There were signs all over Kathmandu, at least the, the main city, big letters that said, perform your dharma, which translated into local cultural context meant, shut up about being poor, do not criticize our government, perform your dharma. Uh, obviously nobody would believe a perform your dharma here in the United States, and I hope that that situation is coming to Nepal as well. Hi, <clears throat> um, my name's Bruce. Um, with uh, all the economic uncertainty and uh, um, discomfort that uh, people have with education being uh, not quite uh, going in the right direction and healthcare, um, you know, being what it is, uh, and the you know difficulty we've had trying to figure out how to move in the right direction for healthcare, how do you? Uh, describe um, the economics of how we will actually achieve um, a better feeling about healthcare, have a healthcare system that works, uh, and an education system that uh, is what we'd like to see it. Well, in healthcare, we need some kind of fundamental change. I think that the bills in the House and Senate are extraordinarily complicated. They're full of loopholes and rules and handouts, and they are designed to, to patch a problem here, patch a problem there, patch a problem here, patch a problem there. It, it, healthcare is already too convoluted in the United States. It needs simplicity rather than new levels of complexity, and the bill... Uh, the, the bills to the extent anybody can understand, especially the bill in the Senate, uh, just proposes to add new levels of complexity. I think we need a much more simplified approach. We can either take one of the good models from Europe, and the, I think the best models are the French and, and, and the Dutch healthcare systems, we can take those models, which are fundamentally single-payer systems, but where people are doctors and so on, they're still private employees. We can say, let's use that. They've proven that it works. It costs less than our model, and the health care outcomes are approximately the same, maybe slightly better. So let's just take their system and use it. I'm not saying this is politically easy to do, but we'll either take one of their systems and use it, or we can change our system in the other direction and say, let's have everybody have mandatory catastrophic health care insurance and then pay everything else out of pocket yourself. That's also a kind of simplification, getting rid of a lot of rules and regulations and confusion. That's kind of the libertarian way to go. Either one would be, I think, to me, superior to the, the incredible complexity that we have today with the proposal to add incredibly more complexity to it in the future. I think that uh, the audience, and certainly I am, very impressed by your optimism because I think 
I, I have a hunch that most of us come here with a lack of optimism. That's why we're here, undoubtedly. Um, some of the things that you discussed, and especially the uh, changes in agricultural production, I think that there's so much evidence that's been written about monoculture that's very destructive, and the loss of forestation to uh, agriculture in especially uh, third world countries has been pretty devastating. And, and then when we just look at history as a whole and you talk about the democratic, your optimism is that democracy seems to be something that we can believe is going to be perhaps a saving grace around the world. I, I have a fundamental question about the balance of, of what we would call the democratic process and and um, individual or um, non-government uh, policy development, because that seems to be the sticking point for certainly us in terms of developing policy in the United States. Uh, I think there was something regarding the development of very high-speed trains in China now, and the government can just impose that, and we always have things even with with green technology that nobody wants it in their backyard in this country, and so we have a constant conflict. So could you comment about uh, government as you see it versus private enterprise and the ability to move forward in, in uh, policy that is healthy for us and for the rest of the world? Sure, let me take those questions in the reverse order of democracy. It's hard to make democracies work, which we've learned here. They cannot be imposed from without. The people of a nation have to desire to live in a democracy. I think that desire is pretty strong in most nations, if not in all. It took the nations of Europe, depending on when you want to measure the starting point, maybe 300 years to work out democratic institutions. It took us at least a century. Of course, everybody knows our original constitution allowed for slavery. It took us at least a century to work out the basis of our democracy. It doesn't surprise me that other countries around the world are, are having fits and starts in their attempt to transition to democracy. But think, I was just in India recently. India has all kinds of problems. It's also the world's second largest country, and by the way, on the way to be the world's number one largest country, and it's a democracy. It's a democracy where elections are clean, where people don't buy office, where if the ruling party loses the confidence of the people, it's replaced. The, the arc of social change, I think, in India is mainly positive. And India is a country that, you know, just four decades ago, Paul Ehrlich wrote a best-selling book saying that literally everyone in India would starve to death and there was no hope whatsoever for that country. And now it's, you know, it's the biggest democracy in the world. Uh, it's a fitful process. It's far from perfect. There may be something better than democracy that will eventually supplant it. But for now, it's, what, well, it's, it's where, where I'm going to put my chips. It's what I want to bet on. Now, monoculture, agriculture, that, that means everybody or almost everybody in an area growing the same strain of plant. Uh, it's efficient. Is it a gamble? A lot of people have been uncomfortable with monoculture agriculture since it's become common in the last 50 years. It feels like it has some potential to backfire. It never has. So remember, although monoculture does involve the same strain of plant being grown, the, plant, the strain is changed every year. That's probably the reason that it hasn't backfired yet. It might in the future. But 
If you think about those Malthusian predictions, not just from Paul Ehrlich, but from Malthus himself and, and all in between, that the world would starve to death because population growth would always exceed the ability of farmers to raise their yields, with every year but one in the post-war year era, it's been the other way around. Farm yield has increased faster than population growth. That's why we haven't seen mass starvation in recent decades. The word crop failure has fallen out of international discourse. The last major crop failure in the world was in 1979. Trust me, if the words crop failure came back in the newspapers and food supply was an issue again, this would rapidly trump all other concerns in international politics. So although monoculture agriculture is far from perfect, it's served us pretty well so far. Thank you, Mr. Easterbrook. Um, appreciate your comments. My name is Joe Hartnett, and um, my question is, with the decline of respect and, uh, and uh, confidence in institutions and the rapid rise of globalism, can you prognosticate what kind of governmental system we're going to have in the world? Well, I think that's a perceptive question. People have been predicting for years that eventually national borders and national government systems would fade away. What would replace them? You know, the, the, the dystopian answer is that giant corporations will just replace national government systems and we'll, and, we'll all work, and we'll all be citizens of corporations rather than of nations. I hope that won't happen. I can't guarantee that it won't. Um, I would like to see a world where borders mattered less than they do today. I think increasing prosperity will have a lot to do with making that possible. I think stabilization of the human population will have a lot to do with making that possible. In a world of rising population, it's hard to feel confident about anything that your neighboring nation may do. If the human population stabilizes, then the United Nations has a pretty good track record of predicting this, if uh, predicting population trends. If the human population stabilizes in the second half of this century and then begins to decline in the 22nd century, which is what the United Nations is also now predicting, uh, I think a lot of mutual distrust between nations may naturally fade and the desire to cooperate may increase. But will this lead to some sort of benevolent government, the utopian solution for one world? Or will it lead to some dystopian result where big corporations rule everything and things get even worse? I, uh, I wish I knew. 